Wide awake, I know. We just sat down, and y'all are already starting to fade on me. Well, I'll be very lively today, and I'll move around a lot and talk loud, and no, just kidding. But um, y'all are really not all there. But anyway, uh, it's good to see you. And you know, there's a movie that's been released just in the last week, I think, or maybe coming up next week. It's called The Shack, and it's based on a movie, or based on a book that was written several years ago. It's a fictional novel. It's about this guy who is going through a really tough season in his life. He goes out into the woods. And he finds the shack in the woods, and his whole intent in going out there was to try and find some time of healing, to find some time of closure as a result of all the difficulties that he's been through. And uh, he meets up with three characters while he's out there at this shack in the woods. And spoiler alert, he, uh, these three characters end up being God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so he interacts with these three characters, and there's some artistic license that takes place as a result of the movie and stuff like that where... I won't get into all that, but nevertheless, the point, uh, you know, the essential character of who God is, is connected and is taught in, in the movie, and um, it's, you know, it's a pretty good, pretty entertaining thing. It's a good page turner if you ever want to read the book. Um, today, though, we want to tackle the subject of the Trinity. Remember, we're in this series called You Ask For It, where you ask questions or you share theological questions that you might have or just cultural concerns that you like to see what the Bible has to say about these particular issues. And so this week we're looking at the subject of the Trinity, specifically how can God exist simultaneously as three distinct persons, and yet we call ourselves monotheists, that is, that we believe in one God. And so that's what we want to talk about today, and then we'll talk about what difference all this makes to your life and to mine. But first, let's turn over in our scriptures to Matthew chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, you can flip over to Matthew chapter 3, and this is the account of Jesus' baptism he goes down into the waters of the Jordan River um, due east of where Jerusalem is, and he goes and he meets John the Baptist. And what I want for you to be on the lookout for as we read through this text is to identify the three parts of the Godhead in this story. Okay, so you all be on the lookout. That's your job as we read together. So I'm going to ask you to, because we need to stand and get our blood going, to stand for the reading from God's Word, Matthew chapter 3. We're going to read verses 13 through 17, the account of Jesus' baptism. All right, here we go. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. Verse 16, As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. All right, you may be seated. Thank you so much. Now, my question is, did you see the three persons of the Trinity in that story? Did you identify God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit? Did you three, see all three of them existing there in this account? So let's kind of walk through verse 16. This is where they all show up. It says, as soon as Jesus was baptized, so there's God the Son, right? Jesus went up out of the water, and at that moment heaven was opened, and he, Jesus, saw the Spirit of God. So here's another part of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, descending like a dove and lighting on Jesus. And then uh, verse 17, a voice from heaven said, this is my Son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Now whose voice is speaking there here at the tail end of this account? It's the voice from heaven. And whose voice is from heaven? Because you got Jesus there. you got the Holy Spirit already there. So there's this other voice, this third voice that comes. And this voice comes from heaven. This is the voice of God the Father. 
the doctrine of the Trinity. Okay, that's what we, there's, that, the word Trinity is not a word that appears in the Scripture. It's just a word to describe or designate what this concept. And the doctrine of the Trinity is that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit exist as three distinct persons simultaneously and they are co-eternal, that is that none of them was created, that they have always been and will always be, so they are co-eternal, and they also are co-equal, that is that no one part of the Godhead is greater or lesser than another part of the Godhead. Jesus commented to this in, um, in the, at the Great Commission, where he said, Matthew chapter 28, and verse 19, "...therefore go and make disciples of all nations." baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So here Jesus makes no distinction between their co-eternality. He makes no distinction between their co-equality whatsoever. He sees each of the three parts of the Godhead as distinct. He sees each part of the Godhead as fully God and as fully eternal beings with no beginning or ending and as equal in every way. The Athanasian Creed, a group of early church fathers, got together because there were a lot of questions about this concept of the Trinity, and they wanted to go ahead and nail down what the church believed and what the Bible taught. And so in the Athanasian Creed, a guy by the name of Athanasius gathered uh, in a synod, gathered a group of early church fathers together in the year 381 AD, and this is the statement that they drafted. Here it is, and I quote, We worship one God in Trinity, neither confounding the persons, not blending them, nor dividing the substance. In this Trinity, nothing is greater or less but all three persons are co-eternal together and co-equal, end of quote. Now, any other definition of the Trinity, friends, is to be rejected. Any other definition or understanding of the, tri the triuneness of God is to be considered as heresy. This is the official position of the church. This is what the Bible teaches, and this is that concept that we claim here. Now, the question then rises... Because especially if you're talking to a Muslim person, is how can we believe that God is three distinct persons and yet claim to be monotheist? Monotheist is somebody that believes that there's one God. A polytheist is someone who believes in many gods. If you were talking to a Muslim person, they would tell you that Christians are polytheists because we pray to, we believe that God is three individual persons. And so, you know, to get our heads wrapped around that, well, how, what do we say to the Muslim person? What do we say to the watching world that, no, indeed, we are monotheists. Christians do believe in just one God, not many gods. So how do we answer them? Well, that's a really great question, and let me kind of begin to share with you how all this fleshes out. I've got a timeline that I prepared for you, and this slide shows a timeline of human history. Um, beginning at creation all the way through to the end of time. I don't know how well y'all can see that in the back or whatnot, but I'll describe it for you and you follow along with me. So you've got two lines there. One of the lines is what the Bible would, Jewish Bible scholars would refer to as the age of the law. So two ages of human history. The first age is the age of the law. It began with creation, then the fall took place, and then this is what we would consider the Old Testament period of human history. During the Old Testament period of human history, the part of the Godhead that was most active on the planet, you follow me? That was most active on the planet was God the Father. Not God the Son, not God the Holy Spirit, but God the Father. And then you have a second age that begins with the birth of Christ and extends on even into the day that we live today and extends on into our future and is marked by the end of time. And this is what we would call the age of the Spirit or the church age. 
the part of the Godhead that is most active during this particular period, the age that we live in now, is the Holy Spirit. Now go back with me for just a moment to the first age, the age of the law, where the Father was the most active part of the Godhead on planet Earth. Where was the Father? Well, I got a picture for you. Here's where he was. Where was the Father during that age of the law, during the Old Testament age? He was in that tabernacle, right? That really pretty structure there. And that word tabernacle, you've heard me share here before, is a Hebrew term. It's a verb. It means to dwell. The idea is that God is tabernacling in the midst of his people. Okay? And so God the Father dwelt in the back or tabernacled in the back of the, ta- in the, in the, back of the tabernacle in the room called the Holy of Holies, that pillar of fire by night, that pillar of cloud by day. And he, he lived there. He resided there. It wasn't the Son that was in the back of the, ho- in the Holy of Holies. It wasn't the Holy Spirit that was in the Holy of Holies. It was God the Father that was in the Holy of Holies. And he dwelt in the midst of his people here on planet Earth. God was here tabernacling, dwelling in the midst of his people. Well, in the year 70 A.D., that temple was destroyed, and some would say that with the resurrection of Christ ended the first age. Others would say that in the year 70 A.D., when the sacrificial system in the temple itself was destroyed, that that was the end of that first age. You can see an overlap here between the ending of the first age and the beginning of the second. You follow that? With the birth of Christ being the beginning of the second. And so the part of the Godhead that was most active here on planet Earth during that little overlap period was God the Son. John chapter 1 and verse 14 says, I have no idea where I'm at in my notes, but we're just rolling along. John chapter 1 and verse 14 says, um, the Word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us. And then what we learn about from the scriptures in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 19 tells us, um, Paul reminds us, hey, look, not God the Father was dwelling in the tabernacle. He was tabernacling amidst of his people. And then he dwelt in the flesh. But now during the church age, during the age of the Spirit, he tabernacles in us. Paul said, 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 19, he said, Do you not know that your body, your fleshly body, is a temple of the Holy Spirit? And this was the great promise that the Bible made us, that no longer would God circumcise our physical bodies, but he would circumcise our hearts that God would dwell within the hearts of men. He would write on our hearts the laws of God. That is, the Holy Spirit would come and dwell inside of us. So no longer is God dwelling in a brick-and-mortar facility, a building. No longer is he dwelling in the flesh in the person of Jesus. But now, during the current age, he's dwelling in the midst of us. Now, take all of that into account, and a guy by the name of Sibelius appeared in the 300s A.D. and began to teach a particular Uh, explanation of the Trinity of what he called modalism. Modalism is this idea that God existed in the Old Testament age in the mode of the Father, and that the other two parts of the Godhead did not exist. So he existed in the mode of the Father, and then during the overlap period of those two ages that he existed in the mode of human flesh in the person of Jesus, and now during the current age, Sibelius was teaching, that, um, that God exists uh, in the mode of the Holy Spirit. The Father no, doesn't exist in the, in the person of the Father, doesn't exist in the person of the, of, of the Son, but exists in the person of the Holy Spirit. And the early church fathers recognized that this was heresy. They recognized that this is not what the Bible taught. Because if you go back to Matthew chapter 3, let's take a look again at Matthew chapter 3. If you go back to Matthew chapter 3 and look at um, verse 16... It says, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, lighting on him. So in the one account, we have Jesus and the Spirit descending 
So we have two parts of the Godhead existing simultaneously. You follow that? Existing simultaneously. And then all of a sudden in verse 17 it says, And a voice came from heaven, This is my Son, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. So now we've got the the Father also entering into this occasion. If we go back into Genesis chapter 1, we see the same thing. The Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the deep at creation. And then the Father begins to speak. And then the part of the Godhead that can walk, that appears in human flesh, shows up in the garden and has a conversation with Adam and Eve. So we got the whole Godhead all the way back at creation. And we see a number of these times all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the New Testament, where the parts of the Godhead appear simultaneously, which is where the early church fathers came up with this, uh, drilled down this Athanasian creed, where they taught that God is simultaneous. He exists simultaneously, co-eternally, and co-equally, not one part being better or greater than the others. Now, modalism is heresy. Uh, modalism does not comport with, doesn't agree with that Athanasian creed. It doesn't agree with what we just read in the scriptures, where we see all three parts of the God. Everybody with me? I told you I was going to give you a little extra energy today. Maybe I need to talk a little faster so you stay with me. But anyway, won't do that either. Um, and so, uh, but anyhow, the point being that um, the, see, I lost a page in my notes. I was just all over the place today. Sorry. I knew something was wrong. Um, and so, again, it still leaves us with a question. So we understand that modalism is incorrect. It represents heresy. Um, but it still leaves us with this idea that God is these three distinct persons, and yet we are claiming that these three distinct persons are one. So how do we explain this? How do we understand this? Well, one, an explanation that I ran across several years ago, and I just thought it, 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 it makes good sense, was the idea of comparing the Trinity of God, the triune God, to that of H2O. You know what H2O is? It's water, right? We call it water. But actually, H2O exists in three different forms. Let's take a look at the three different forms of H2O. It's two parts hydrogen, right? One part oxygen. I never was good at chemistry. But anyhow, uh, these three parts of, of H2O are the three forms in which it exists. One part is in a solid form, one part is in a liquid form, and another part is in a gaseous form. And then those three we know to be, go to our next slide, that the solid form is ice, all right? And then the uh, liquid form is, you already said it, water. And then the gaseous form is steam, right? And so we have these three forms in which H2O exists. Same substance existing simultaneously, co-eternally, co-equally, not one greater than the other. And this is, can, this, again, you flip one more slide, this goes and, and kind of helps us understand how the Father, the Son, and the Spirit exist at the same time simultaneously of the same substance, right? Not one greater co-equal, not one greater or lesser than the others, and co-eternal. Um, so that's our treatment of this topic for today, of the Trinity, which I know has got you asking a question. It's a question we ask every week around here. What difference does all this make in my life? You say, Gordon, that's really great to understand the Trinity. I might go check out that movie, The Shack, now. But, I mean, outside of that, well, how's this going to help me pay my bills and get the kids off to school in the morning, right? Well, let's talk about that. You see, um, the Bible makes us a wonderful promise. If you go back to that timeline, I don't know if I had this in the order or not, but if you go back to that timeline for a second, you'll notice a, a, there exists in that timeline a constant. And the constant is that God is always with us. You see that? All through human history, in different forms, whether it's the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit, 
God has always tabernacled, dwelt among us, and now in us. The Bible says it like this, Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 5. God says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Friends, this is the solemn promise of the God of the Bible, that the continuous, never-ending, unceasing, unfailing, unbroken, uninterrupted presence of God, the living God of the universe, will always be with us, with us wherever we go, with us whenever we go there, with us whatever we're doing there, and with us whatever or however we get there. You know, many times at a funeral, someone will read, and I usually, I like to read it, uh, Psalm chapter 23. Psalm chapter 23 is a wonderful words of comfort, especially at a time when people are grieving. Uh, David was going through a downturn in his life, and he shares these words. See if they sound familiar to you. Psalm chapter 23 and verse 1. It says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. Remember, David's going through a downturn. And then he says in verse 4, this wonderful, wonderful promise. He says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. You know, that statement never promised David he wouldn't walk through a valley. That promise, that statement never said to David, God said, hey, David, I'll come in and rescue you from all the valleys that you might go through. That way you'll never be afraid. It's not what David was promised. What David was promised is the great equalizer when we're in the middle of the valley, and that is God's presence with us. You know, it isn't interesting that when David had these fears creep up in his life that to resolve how David was feeling, to comfort him, God didn't remove David from the valley David still walked through the valley. God didn't say, hey, look, I'm going to take you out of this. I'm going to remove you from the situation. Instead, God said, David, you're going to go through some valleys, but the solution to your fear is that I am going to be with you. I don't care how deep that valley is. I don't care how wide that valley is. I don't care how long it's going to take for you to get through that valley. God said, I will be with you. And these were wonderful words of comfort to David. It enabled him to keep going through the valley. And friends, as followers of Christ, this is still true today for us. When it comes to facing the toughest crises in our life, it's the presence of God right there with us, a constant throughout human history that makes all the difference. That in the good times and in the tough times and the successes and in the failures, when the going is light and when the going is tough, no matter the circumstance, God has made us this promise, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. God will not leave us unguarded. God will not leave us alone. And when we let this truth sink in, friends, and permeate our hearts, look at what happens. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 5. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Verse 6. So therefore, we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Do you hear the confidence? Do you hear the courage that's risen in David's voice, that's risen in the author's voice here, that comes from the presence of God tabernacling, dwelling with us? You say, Gordon, I really appreciate what you're saying. I understand what you're saying. And I understand that God doesn't necessarily remove the valley, but that he goes with us into it. I get all that. But I got a question for you, and that is that sometimes I don't feel like God is there. 
how can I be sure that God is there? I shared this verse with you several weeks ago, and it comes from Titus chapter 1 and verse 2, and it reminds us that God cannot lie, right? God cannot lie. But even when we know that God cannot lie, there's something on us that has to trust that God won't lie, that he never will leave us, that he never will forsake us. And so really what it boils down to is do we trust the words of our Heavenly Father or not? Do we trust that he's going to be there for us when we need him or don't we? You say, Gordon, do you always get this right? I got plenty of times when I doubt, plenty of times when I'm going through a valley of my own, when I'm wondering, God, I'm feeling pretty much like I'm on my own here. But it's in those times when I'm having some skepticism and I'm having some doubt and I'm wondering if God's really there with me. This is the really beautiful part of that, that when I'm having a tough day and I'm struggling with trusting God, in those times, get this, God is as much with me as he is when I'm fully trusting him. You see, God being with me does not depend on my trust factor in him. He didn't say, hey, when you're going to church and your attendance is great and you're fully trusting in me, then I'll be with you. When you're memorizing scripture and you're praying every day, then I'll be with you. God didn't throw a qualifier in front of that. He said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you? Friends, I'm sure that many of us here today who are going through a valley of our own, but God's solemn promise and his consistent pattern throughout human history is that we are not alone. God promises to be with us. And so if you're going through a tough time in your life, if you're facing a tough season, picture that the Lord is with you. Because friends, that's the way it really is. Let's bow our heads together. Most gracious God, we thank you for this time to hear from your word. We thank you for a fresh reminder of your promise and the difference that it makes, not just for our life today, Lord, but the difference it's made for so many who have gone before us. And that promise remains. It is your consistent pattern. Holy Spirit, if there's some issues in our life that we are wrestling through, some struggles that we are facing, it is our prayer that your presence in us, your tabernacling in us, Lord, that it would rise to the surface, that your presence would make the difference, that we would find peace and strength in the presence of God. Lord, as we turn our attention now to this table, remembering your broken body and your shed blood, we are reminded how much God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit love us. That you sent Jesus, God in the flesh, to dwell among us, to die for our sins, to take on the penalty that was due us, upon his physical body. Lord, fill us with a gratitude this morning as we meditate and view our Savior hanging on the cross, paying the price 
for our sins. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen.